Well, David begins to make preparations. He's in the city of Manam and he's getting ready for the final battle that will come. Absalom has now crossed the Jordan River and he encamps at Gilead. And he's getting ready to lead the final push to kill the man whom he seeks. Now what happens in the great battle, brothers and sisters, fought in the forest of Ephraim will be our consideration for our last class today. And we've entitled this, Absalom's Place, The Way of All Men. Well, let's just remind ourselves of a couple of the lessons that we picked up from our third session together uh, last week. The first thing we realized was that the mind that sympathizes with dissatisfaction and strife will inevitably manifest itself in a rebellious spirit. It's like cause and effect. Secondly, that dependency on God creates a humility of spirit and is demonstrated by the mercy and forgiveness that we show to others. A dependence on self is demonstrated by a vengeful and a prideful spirit and is shown when we mistreat others. And then thirdly, like David, we need to understand there is only one host of the Lord. When times are darkest and we feel the pressures of life closing in, starting to swallow us up, surrounded by the Absaloms and Ahithophels in our own lives, we need to strengthen ourselves and remember that God hears the prayers of the faithful and delivers them from evil. Well, in 2 Samuel 17 and verse 24, we read, Then David came to Maonim, and Absalom passed over Jordan, and he and all the men of Israel with him. David, as we saw in our last class, has chosen to find comfort in this city of Maonim, in the land of Gilead. As we discovered, it was a place where the angels of Yahweh dwelt. And it was the patriarch Jacob that had discovered this when he camped there. Now David's spiritual mind would see the protective care of his God in this place. Surrounded, as it were, by the angels of God, he's in God's camp. And it's comforting to us as well, isn't it, brothers and sisters? We may not see the angels of God at work, but we know they are at work. They're preparing the world stage for the return of the Lord. They are ministering spirits sent forth to help those that are faithful. Such was David's faith. If you take a look at Psalm 3 and at verse 5 to 6, you'll notice the heading at the top of the psalm. So we know we're in the right place. And so we know we're going to get a little bit of an insight into what David is going through at this particular time. Because Psalm 3, we read at the top, it says, A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. So this is the thinking of David at this particular time. How wonderful that this is recorded for us. And so we read in verse 5, At this place of Maonaim, I'd laid me down and slept. I awake. For the Lord sustained me. 
I will not be afraid of 10,000 of people that have set themselves against me roundabout. And now that's exactly the situation that David now finds himself in. He is surrounded by tens of thousands of people that are against him. As Absalom has assembled all the army of Israel, he's gone from Dan to Beersheba, and they've all joined the fight to fight against the king. In 2 Samuel 17, in verse 25 and 26, we read, And Absalom made Amasa captain of the host instead of Joab, which Amasa was a man's son whose name was Ithra, an Israelite, that went into Abigail, the daughter of Naash, sister to Zeruiah, Joab's mother. So Israel and Absalom pitched in the land of Gilead. Absalom appoints Amasa to be the captain of the host of his army. He is the son of David's sister, Abigail, making him David's nephew and a cousin to both Joab and Absalom. And as an aside, brothers and sisters, he's a man that is later also appointed to be commander of David's army. And that would be to be proved to be a promotion that came with a death sentence. Because Joab will eventually kill his cousin. In Joab's mind, there was only one captain, and it wasn't going to be Amasa. Now, the title captain here refers not so much to his position, although he does replace Joab as leader of Israel's army, but it relates more to the leading of a host against David. Thayer notes this word is not only used of a captain, but specifically used of a host. I, in the example of a host of heaven, and is sometimes used to refer to God's host of heavenly angels. It's as if the battle that is forming, brothers and sisters, should be seen as God's battle. And I think David understood that as well. Because in the Psalms, as he reflects on these events, in verse 7 of Psalm 3, he says, Arise, O Yahweh, save me, O my God, for thou hast smitten all mine enemies. There's no doubt in David's mind that God's involved in his battles. And then verse 8 says, Salvation belongeth unto Yahweh. In David's mind, these were God's battles, and God was fighting. And that's why I think he was in Mahanaim. He's with the host of Yahweh. We get a picture here of a false host, a false army risen up against Absalom, by Absalom and Amasa, versus the true host of God's heavenly angels, located in Maenaim, led by God's beloved, David. David's a man under severe pressure. His friends, those closest to him, even his own son has turned against him. Yet, what an example we have in David. Here's a man for suffering for the sins that he committed, yet we know he's forgiven. He's heavy of heart, yet he's beloved of God. 
And as David arrives at Manam, he has some faithful friends who come to assist him. No doubt, sent by God just at the exact time that he needed them. So in 2 Samuel 17 that we read this morning, in verses 27 to 29, we read of these three friends that come to see him. So we read of this Shobai, the son of Naash. We read of Macher, the son of Amiel. And of course, his great friend Barzillai, the Gileadite. These men would bring practical comfort and show hospitality to David. They brought things like food and bedding to assist David to look after his family, to look after his loyal servants. These men were not soldiers, but they did what they could. What they did was every bit as helpful as the soldiers that would fight for David. Soldiers can't fight on empty stomachs, and they can't fight without proper sleep. Just like in an ecclesia, brothers and sisters, every contribution matters. Never think that what you do doesn't matter or contribute to the whole. If you are busy at work in the ecclesia, wonderful. Keep it up. If we are not, let's get moving. Let's get busy. Don't think it should be just left up to the showbys, the mackers, and the barzillies. I think it's remarkable, brothers and sisters, that these three individuals did in a practical way for David, and it was recorded for us, what they did. What incredible examples they are to us of those who get involved and serve in the best way they can within the ecclesia of God. Well, despite the traitors and the nation turning against him, David trusts in his God. It remains unshakable. Perhaps some of us have felt despair from the circumstances in our own lives. It could be from family struggles. It might be work-related or a result of, say, some physical ailment that we have. Brothers and sisters, the examples recorded in David's life are left on record for us. There's a purpose to it. They can sustain us. The words that David speaks as he experienced these things can sustain us. As we read through the various psalms of David, they've been designed to help us, especially when we're feeling low. We can enter into David's mind as he encouraged himself in Yahweh. Now we want to notice a couple of features as we move through the record here, brothers and sisters, towards the battle that's about to come. You recall that Hushai, David's friend, gave counsel, and Absalom and his war cabinet all agreed with his plan. Hushai's advice was to delay the attack and call men from all over Israel to join the battle. He knew, of course, that this would take time, and thus it would allow David to organize his forces. Well, in following this advice, Absalom rejected Ahithophel's counsel to move quickly and attack David. In this way, the counsel of Ahithophel was turned to foolishness. It was not followed. Why was it not followed? 
Well, take a look at verse 14 of 2 Samuel chapter 17. Because we want to see that God is entered into this battle. There's something more here for us. And in 2 Samuel 17 and verse 14, we read, And Absalom and all the men of Israel said, The counsel of Hushai the Archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. Now here's the reason, brothers and sisters. For the Lord had appointed to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel to the intent that the Lord might bring evil upon Absalom. Brothers and sisters, this battle is Yahweh's. He has now joined this battle to fight against Absalom, to bring evil upon him, to do what David could not do. Suddenly, the events that we're about to read about take on an even greater significance. Now, we're going to come back to this later, about the Lord's involvement in this battle. Well, David prepares his troops for the battle. The very fate of the kingdom hangs in the balance. He's going to organize his forces into three divisions. How large an army David has with him, we're not told. Josephus postulates at least 4,000. We know Absalom has tens of thousands, perhaps as many as 40 or 50,000 men. The odds are not in David's favor from a human perspective. He's going to have Job lead a third of the people. He's going to have Abishai, Job's brother. He's going to lead another third. And finally, David's loyal friend, Ittai, the the Gentile, the Gittite, will lead the final third. And Ittai himself is really quite a man. Look at the loyalty that this Gentile has towards David. When David fled Jerusalem, David actually gives this man an opportunity to go back into the city to get away. In 2 Samuel 15, just a few pages over in verse 19, Then said the king to Ittai the Gittite, Wherefore goest thou also with us? Return to thy place and abide with the king, for thou art a stranger and also an exile. You can stay with the king. Notice how David actually calls Absalom the king. After all, you are a Gentile, a stranger. You don't need this grief of being involved in a civil war against Israelites. I'm going to be going from place to place. Take your family, your brother and back with you. And David says, mercy and truth be with you. Here was Idai's opportunity to turn back, to save his life and his family, to avoid all the hardships that lay ahead. But not this man, brothers and sisters. Similar to the words of Peter to the Lord, when the Lord asked his disciples if they would leave him. Remember what Peter says? He says, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. Ittai says in 2 Samuel 15 and verse 20, And Ittai answered the king and said, As the Lord liveth, and as my lord the king liveth, surely in what place my lord the king shall be, whether in death or life, even there also will thy servant be. Like Ittai and Peter, brothers and sisters, 
as the return of our Lord draws near, where can we go? How can we turn back now? Where else would we want to be? Our Lord has the words of eternal life, and he will shortly grant eternal life to those who remain faithful unto the end. Well, David, as we know, makes a decision. He decides he's going to lead the troops into battle. Here's a man that's prepared to go to war to save the nation, to put down the rebellion. But the people won't permit it. Such was their love and their loyalty to him. In 2 Samuel 18 and verse 3 we read, But the people answered, Thou shalt not go forth. For if we flee away, they will not care for us. Neither if half of us die will they care for us. But now thou art worth ten thousand of us. Therefore now it is better that thou succor us out of the city. You can help us, David, if we need to flee back to the city of Maenam. Uh, you can maybe even send us supplies from the city. But if something was to happen to you, David, we would be done for. All would be lost. The people know that Absalom only wants one person. He wants to kill David. Well, David shows, I think, another wonderful aspect of his character here. Because after all, as king, he can overrule the people. He's in charge. But what does he do? He humbly submits to their request. David says, what seemeth you best, I'll do that. David was approachable. And that's also a wonderful characteristic of a good leader. Are we approachable, brothers and sisters? Or do we go into defensive mode when someone speaks to us? Immediately, we go to defensive mode. If somebody wants to tell us something, maybe they are correcting us or giving us some guidance for something that could be helpful for us. Do we stop and contemplate what has been said before we speak? Are we humble enough to listen? With with the army now split into three companies, David issues his final instructions. This is not just the king speaking to his troops. No, this is a father thinking about his son. David's love for his boy permeates the record of 2 Samuel 18. He instructs the captains in verse 5 of chapter 18. And the king commanded Joab and Abishai and Ittai, saying, Deal gently for my sake with the young man, even with Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave all the captains charge concerning Absalom. I think David knew what he was dealing with, certainly with Joab and Abishai, the sons of Zeruiah. David called them adversaries. They were too hard. They were without mercy. And I think this is probably why, in the audience of all the people, he makes this appeal about his son. What a contrast of opposites. A wicked son who hated his father, and a loving father whose natural affections were so strong towards this boy. Sadly, objectivity seems to have gone out the window. What a lesson, what a warning to parents ever since 
If and when our children do wrong, are we prepared to apply God's principles to their actions? Or do we let our natural affections as parents override God's principles? Our failure to act, brothers and sisters, will lead to more sorrow and additional problems. If we want proof of that, David's other son, Adonijah, was indulged in the exact same way that Absalom was treated. In 1 Kings 1 and at verse 6, and I'll read this from the NIV, 1 Kings 1 and verse 6, it says, the record tells us his father, David, had never rebuked him by asking, why do you behave as you do? And the record goes on to say he was also very handsome and was born next after Absalom. Because of this lack of discipline, this boy too would suffer disastrous consequences. You get a sense, brothers and sisters, from the record that David knew who was going to win this battle. Although not specifically recorded, in the Psalms we are given every indication that David would have prayed to God for deliverance. He would have gone to God for help. And with his faith in God, he knew Israel would be no match for his host if God fought for him. And so David focuses on Absalom as if he knew the men of Israel would be no match. Just go easy. Just deal gently with Absalom. Well, Absalom leads his troops into battle. For he followed the advice of his false friend, Hushai who had, a, had appealed to his ego by encouraging him, you go ahead, Absalom, you lead the people in battle. That'll be a good thing. Everybody will follow you, Absalom. And you'll get credit for the victory. Oh, Absalom, love that. And in 2 Samuel 18, in verses 6 to 8, we read, So the people went out into the field against Israel, and the battle was in the wood of Ephraim where the people of Israel were slain before the servants of David, and there was a great slaughter that day of 20,000 men. For the battle was there scattered over the face of all the country, and the wood devoured more people that day than the sword devoured. The two armies collide in the field. David sends his army on the offensive, not allowing Absalom and Amasa to approach the suburbs of Mahanaim. Quickly, the fighting shifts into the woodland area of Gilead. The fighting moves. Men race for cover in the thick forest of Ephraim. The army of Israel seems to descend into absolute chaos. 20,000 men are slain in one day. And here, once again, we see it as Yahweh's battle. Not that God doesn't accomplish events through man's sword, He does. But the record here gives a clue that natural elements used by the Almighty have been brought to bear on this rebellion. And the wood devoured more people that day than the sword devoured. God's involved, all right. Yahweh has raised up this evil on Absalom. Amasa, Amasa, 
must have fled when he saw the situation deteriorate. We know that because as their captain, he lives to fight another day. Absalom seems to get cut off from the forces. Certainly his bodyguard has scattered. His mule crashes through the thick bracken as he flees for his life. His rebellion is now in tatters. All he had hoped for is gone. The only thing that he can focus on is escape. God is involved. Absalom is not going to get away this day. Perhaps he thought he just might, as he runs into David's soldiers and they don't kill him when they first see him. And in an event of absolute poetic justice, brothers and sisters, we see in 2 Samuel 18 and 9, And Absalom met the servants of David, and Absalom rode on a mule, and the mule went under the thick boughs of a great oak. And his head caught hold of the oak, and he was taken up between the heaven and the earth, and the mule that was under him went away. Absalom becomes entangled in a tree. Whether it was his beautiful flowing hair that did him in, or whether his neck was entangled in the thick of the branches, the man who represented rebellion was now immobile. He's helpless. No man could save him from this entanglement. He's alone. He's lifted up and he's hanging in a tree. And you notice what the record says? Even his mule left him. How strange a sight this must have been. Here hangs the anti-king of Israel, the pseudo-king that proclaimed himself king in the stead of his father. God wants this man to be displayed. A rebellious, wicked, disobedient spirit is left hanging helpless in a tree. That is where this type of spirit deserves to be. There's an interesting cross-reference that we could put in beside this verse. In Proverbs 30, verse 17, we read, The eye that mocketh at his father, and that was certainly Absalom, and despises to obey his mother, the ravens of the valley shall pick it out, and the young eagles shall eat it. He's hanging. He's vulnerable. Absalom's death although in a similar manner to our Lord's, accomplished nothing and benefited no man. We read, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. Now that's where the similarity ends with our Lord. And that's where the antitype begins. Because the Apostle Paul quotes Deuteronomy 21 and verse 23 when he says in Galatians 3 verse 13, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, 
Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. And as we have gone through the life of Absalom, brothers and sisters, we have seen time and time again that this man stands as an anti-king, soul bent on the overthrow of the kingdom and the death of the king, a man who ran a pseudo-court as a pseudo-judge. Here is a man that in many ways represents the flesh in all its wickedness and rebellion. He stands as the complete opposite of the real king, the real heir to David's throne, the one who is a righteous judge. He's the antitype in every way of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Here is a man that deserves to be hung on a tree, a wicked and rebellious sinner who thought only of himself. He stands in opposition of our Lord, the true king of Israel, rejected by his people, who was also lifted up and hanged on a tree. Our Lord never sinned, and yet he bore our nature, and because of that, submitted to death, demonstrating his father was right. This flesh deserves to die. Now this is what one incident in the life of Absalom whereby we are pointed forward to the life of Christ. We're not left in any doubt, brothers and sisters, as to Absalom's antitypical representation in the biblical record. It is incredible what we are being told through the life of Absalom. It's a lot more than just the story of a rebellious son. We have before us the anti-king, the anti-type, of the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll just consider, we put a couple of these things on the screen for us to consider, and we put the appropriate verses beside each one. Absalom, as we know, is the son of David. The Lord Jesus Christ is not only son of David, he's the son of God. Absalom was a rebellious son loved by his father. The Lord Jesus Christ is an obedient and beloved son loved by his father. Absalom, whose name means his father is peace, gave his father no peace. Our Lord Jesus Christ, on the other hand, is peace, and his father is peace. Absalom, in his pride, he rode chariots and a mule. The Lord Jesus Christ, in his humility, he rode on a colt, the foal of an ass. Absalom tries to seize power and replace his father. The Lord Jesus Christ we read about in Philippians, he did not grasp at equality with his father. Absalom, he was the, an anti-king and a an dishonest judge. The Lord Jesus Christ, he is the king. And he is a righteous judge. His life story is a warning to us, brothers and sisters, of what we should not be how he should not act. And he stands as a powerful contrast to the Lord Jesus Christ, who in his life exemplified exactly how we should think and how we should act. Absalom, for his wickedness and sinful pride, he was cursed to hang on a tree. The Lord Jesus Christ is a bearer of our nature. He was cursed to hang on a tree. Absalom, he was lifted up from the earth, and all men left him. 
Do you remember the Lord Jesus Christ said, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to me. Absalom's death benefited no man. The Lord Jesus Christ benefited from his death and resurrection, and it benefited not only himself, but every man. Absalom, he was put to death by obedient and cruel men. The Lord Jesus Christ was put to death by wicked men, but raised to life again. Absalom, he was buried in the forest under a heap of stones forever. The Lord Jesus Christ was buried in a garden behind a stone for three days. Absalom reared up a pillar to his own name. And the Lord Jesus Christ, we're told in Philippians, was given a name which is above every name. So the Lord Jesus Christ is the wonderful example that in an antitypical way, everything opposite was demonstrated in the life of Absalom. You know, brothers and sisters, even to the unblemished character of this man, it stands as antitypical to our Lord Jesus Christ. In 2 Samuel 14 and verse 25, we recall those words that were written of Absalom, that from the sole of his foot, even to the crown of his head, there was no blemish, there was no spot, there was no stain in him. From a physical outward appearance, he was unblemished. In outward appearance, he's flawless. But inside, he's full of character flaws. Our Lord, on the other hand, is described as having a marred outward appearance. No doubt from the pressures and the stresses that he bore. And then from the final blows of the, that he suffered at the wicked hands of, or at the hands of these men who cruelly buffeted and hit the Lord Jesus Christ. God, brothers and sisters, looks at the heart Isaiah 53 and verse 2. For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. The opposite of Absalom. Verse 3. He is despised. The Lord Jesus Christ was rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Yet Peter tells us, in character, our Lord Jesus Christ was without blemish. He was the perfect sacrifice. 1 Peter 1, verse 19. But with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb, without blemish and without spot. Well, Job struck Absalom three times. The Hebrew word for dart here is used as shebet. It has the idea of a rod, a shaft, a branch, to branch off. Jesenius tells us it was like a staff or a stick that they must have sharpened. And he hit Absalom with this three times. So with these three darts in the middle of his body, Absalom hangs on this tree. Well, when word reaches Job, we know that he finds out that a servant of David saw him hanging in a tree, and he, Job, he just finds it incredible that the person who's telling the story, why didn't you kill Absalom? 
You saw him hanging in the tree. Why didn't you kill him? But the man knows better than that. He knows that if he had done that, Job would have been the first on that man. He remembered. No, no. David commanded all his soldiers not to touch Absalom. And then we see, brothers and sisters, what Job is like. When he does find him, and he sticks him with these three darts, we see that death is going to come very slowly because of this for Absalom. It's not going to be a quick death. How long that he hung in that tree helpless, we're not told. But it would have been long enough for him to be seen of this man who was able to give the report back to Job. It was long enough for the man to find Job in all the chaos of the forest, the fighting and the fleeing Israelites. Long enough for Joab to go back to locate him in the tree in which he was impaled. And then when Job finds him, we know he's still alive. Job's had enough of the idle chit-chat with this man that found him. And he goes, and he says in verse 14, Then said Job, I may not tarry thus with thee, And he took three darts in his hand and thrust them through the heart of Absalom while he was yet alive in the midst of the oak. So the scriptures wants us to know Absalom was still alive, helpless, hanging on that tree. And I think then he's still alive because verse 15 says, And ten young men that bear Job's armor compassed about and smote Absalom and slew him. Now whether Job was right To slay Absalom and go against David's word is something difficult sometimes to understand. But David, years later, when he gives instructions to Solomon about how to deal with Joab, he does not reference Job's cruelty in relation to Absalom, but rather references by name how Job dealt with Abner and Amasa, the two captains of Israel. Those are the instances that David uses to tell Solomon how to deal with Joab. Perhaps David knew deep down this was how this boy should really have been dealt with. What we do know, brothers and sisters, is that David is incapable of judging his wayward son. That Absalom is a man intent on one thing and one thing only. Despite all the mercy that David showed to him, he wants the throne and he wants David killed. Job has done what David could not do. He has stopped the rebellion and prevented a wicked son from doing any more damage. That at least, brothers and sisters, seems clear. And we also saw that this battle was Yahweh's. And that by divine providence, the evil that God brought upon Absalom has now been executed at the hands of Joab. And you notice what Job does? He very cleverly implicates his ten young men, his armor bearers. All of them surround Absalom. And they smite him and slay him, each striking him with a sword or a spear. And it appears that they actually finish him off. The three darts thrown to the heart by Joab left Absalom gravely wounded. The young men now deliver the final death blows. Life slowly seeps away from Absalom. In 2 Samuel 18 and verse 18, as Absalom dies on that tree, 
we have recorded for us, now Absalom in his lifetime had taken and reared up for himself a pillar, which is in the Kingsdale. For he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. And he called the pillar after his own name and is called unto this day Absalom's place. And that word pillar in Strong's means a stump or a personal monument. It was either a monumental stone or a stalk of a tree. Now whatever it was made of, whatever it looked like, he wasn't there. He was buried under a pile of stones in a pit in the woods of Ephraim. And he chose the Kingsdale for his monument. And we don't have time to go into it today, but if you were to put or look at the cross-reference, you'll find that it goes back to Genesis chapter 14. And in Genesis 14, verse 17, this is where Abraham meets Melchizedek when he returns from the slaughter of the kings and he brings back Lot with him. He actually meets Melchizedek in the king's dale. Now, if you visit the land today just outside the walls of Jerusalem on the Kidron Valley, there is this tomb-like monument that is actually called Absalom's tomb or pillar. Archaeologists believe this tomb was built at the time of Christ and was built by Herod for his son, his grandson, Agrippus. Before Herod built this tomb, there was folklore that men and women would pass this place and they would throw stones at the site where Absalom's pillar was thought to have actually been situated. So that even if it was built by Herod, this site is felt to be fairly close to where Absalom's originally set up his pillar in the King's Dale in the Kidron Valley. Well, it's interesting, isn't it, brothers and sisters, if they were throwing stones at this monument where Absalom had built this monument to himself, things would have come full circle for this fellow. Because in Deuteronomy 21, it tells us what happens to a stubborn and rebellious son. In verse 18 of Deuteronomy 21, if a man have a stubborn and rebellious son, which will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and that when they have chastened him, will not hearken unto him, they are to bring him to the elders of the city. And in verse 21, this is what's to happen to that stubborn, rebellious boy. And the men of his city shall stone him with stones that he die. So shalt thou put away evil from among you, and all Israel shall hear and fear. As he had no sons, he had no one to carry on his name. As a proud man, this wouldn't do. I'll build a monument to my name that will allow my legacy to continue. Well, rather than a noble burying plot in the Kingsdale, he was covered by a pile of rocks. A heap of stones would be his monument, not a marble pillar. The point for us, brothers and sisters, is that Absalom never achieved what he desired. He received what he deserved. The Lord Jesus Christ, in Matthew 23 and verse 12, which we put on the screen, and whosoever shall exalt himself shall be abased, and he that shall humble himself 
shall be exalted. 2 Samuel 18 and verse 31. David waits for word of the battle. And behold, the Cushite came, and the Cushite said, he's he's one of the runners, there's two runners that come from the battle scene to tell David the news. One is Ahimeaz, and one is the Cushite. And the Cushite gets there last. Ahimeaz beats him to it, but Ahimeaz doesn't give the full news to King David. It's as if he prepares David for the news that he's about to receive. And behold, the Cushite king, and the Cushite said, Tidings, my lord the king, for the Lord hath avenged thee this day of all them that rose up against thee. But the king's only concerned about one thing from the battle. And the king said unto the Cushite, Is the young man Absalom safe? And the Cushite answered, The enemies of my lord the king, and all that rise up against thee to do thee hurt, be as that young man is. And David had feared, but not hoped for, this news. Absalom, his son, has died in the battle. David weeps uncontrollably for his son. He says the words that any parent might say, Would God I had died for thee. These are the words of a man totally distraught with the news. It was, of course, not God's will that the king die for a wicked son. God is not interested in substitutes. God helps each of us. God holds each of us accountable for our own actions. One day, though, it would be God's plan that a righteous man, God's son, a son of David, would die for others, not as a substitute, but as the representative. But it was not this son. It was not this day. All Israel slunk away to their tents after the battle was over. They went as if they were defeated. They were embarrassed after the battle. There was no celebration of this victory. This was a civil war. All had suffered. David's mourning for his son. It's cast a pall over the whole nation. How he laments the loss of this boy. Maybe David blamed himself for what happened to Absalom. After all, all of these events happened after his sin with Bathsheba. And it is Job that has to rise to the occasion. Job the nationalist, whose concern for the throne was paramount. He tells David, if you don't stop this mourning, if you don't stop this crying, all Israel is going to abandon you. And it will be the worst thing that ever happened to you since your youth till now. And we, brothers and sisters, we can sometimes even see these events in ecclesial life. When parents or relatives have defended wayward children at the expense of ecclesial peace and harmony. If it can happen to David, it can happen to us. We need to think very carefully when it comes to choices made between the ecclesia and our families. Well, Job's words seem to resonate with David. He stirs himself up to go sit in the gate of the city once again. Word spreads that the king is back at the gate. Business can start again. People can start to come to the king for judgment. But the spirit of rebellion that Absalom has started still hangs in the air. 
It will be Sheba the son of Bichri in 2 Samuel chapter 20 that stands up next to oppose the king. Sheba starts another revolt in 2 Samuel 20 and verse 1. As if it wasn't just finished with Absalom. Sheba starts another revolt. He says, we have no part in David. 2 Samuel 20 verse 1. Neither have we inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tents, O Israel. Let's get David again. But David saw this rebellion more clearly than he saw his sons. He quickly dispatches Amasa. It's incredible, by the way, the forgiveness of David. He appoints Absalom's captain as the new captain of his army instead of Joab. Amasa is instructed by David, gather the men of Judah, bring them to me in three days, and we'll pursue Sheba. This rebel must be dealt with quickly. Well, for whatever reason, Amasa takes too long. David's anxious. He instructs Abishai, Job's brother, you go chase him down. Go get Sheba. Stop this rebellion. And so we read, brothers and sisters, the second to last time ever recorded for us that David ever mentions Absalom's name. It appears that David, in the end, started to understand the magnitude of what Absalom, the unrepentant son, had done. 2 Samuel 20, verse 6. And David said to Abishai, Now shall Sheba, the son of Bichri, do more harm than did Absalom. Take thou thy Lord's servants, pursue after him, lest he get him into fenced cities and escape. Well, Sheba, who exemplifies the spirit of Absalom, will be dealt with. But he's not going to be dealt with Amasa, who delayed. Abishai doesn't get the job done. It's technically a woman in the city of Abel that gets the men of the city to do it. And they, throw, they cut Sheba's head off and they throw it over the wall at the feet of Joab. The rebellion started, has now ended. But its head is going to be resurrected again in the days of Rehoboam, David's grandson, when another Absalom rises up and tries to take the kingdom. And this man is going to have some success because he splits the kingdom in half. Well, brothers and sisters, we have followed this young man's life. Absalom, the son of Maacah, the son of David, a man that sought revenge on his brother Amnon for the rape of his sister Tamar. A man who experienced self-imposed exile and banishment, who then received mercy, opportunity, and forgiveness from his father. Yet a man, despite all that, was one who never repented of, the, of his evil ways. Upon his return to Jerusalem to the king's household, he immediately sought how he might go about to take the kingdom and kill David. We have seen a man full of self-pride and confidence, devoid of any spirituality or acknowledgement of God in his life. We have watched this man, who despite all his flaws, was able to subtly steal the nation's heart. We have witnessed the end of the wicked, where rebellious spirits ultimately deserve to be. We have witnessed the stealer of hearts to be cast in a pit under a rubble of stones. This, brothers and sisters, is the way of all men, the place where all sinners go. What a miserable end. But, brothers and sisters, this is not the end 
for those who are faithful, those who follow the statutes of God, those who are part of Christ's body through baptism. No, they wait in hope of a resurrection of the dead. As Jesus says in John 11 and verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And as Paul tells us in Romans 6 verse 5, for if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Brothers and sisters, may we learn from the examples in Absalom's life. This is the spirit of Absalom. This is recorded in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. Now, brothers and sisters, this isn't just for the world, because the world's not reading the Bible. This is for us. And this is the spirit in which the ecclesial world will be in at the time of the end. And the apostle Paul warns Timothy of this. And he says, he says to Timothy, he says, and I'm going to read this from the net, but understand this, that in the last days difficult times will come. For people will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy. And as I read through this, I want you to think about the life of Absalom. And we put the verses down the side in Samuel that relate to these events in the life of Absalom. I think this is a a, a fantastic description of the spirit of an Absalom. Unloving, irreconcilable, slanderers, without self-control, savage, opposed to what is good. Treacherous, reckless, conceited, loving pleasures more than loving God. They will maintain the outward appearance of religion, but will have repudiated its power. So avoid people like this. Brothers and sisters, what a warning to us. That spirit can be alive and well today. As Paul warns us, this will be a sign of the time of the end before the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, finally, brothers and sisters, what can we take away from the life of Absalom? We need to see the hand of Yahweh in the battles we fight. If we remain faithful and obey his commandments, we can have faith that God will deliver us from all our enemies, from all evil. God provides a way of salvation for all mankind through a faithful, obedient son, his son, the true heir to David's throne, who was able to accomplish what no man ever could do. A wicked and a rebellious spirit will be denied kingship, but a humble and a contrite spirit, by God's mercy, will receive a crown of righteousness. And may that be said of us, brothers and sisters.